Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 417 of the podcast. It's Carrie Newhoff here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I am thrilled to bring you Simon Sinek today. More about that in a moment. But thank you so much to our partners. Have you checked out ProMedia Fire yet? You can get your free social media management consultation today, whether you're a business or a church, over at promediafire.com forward slash growth. And by World Vision, you can sign up for their free web series on soul care with Danielle Strickland by going to worldvision.org forward slash carry. That's worldvision.org slash carry. Well, uh, it is a thrill and a half to bring you Simon Sinek today. I know a lot of you have followed Simon for years, as I have, as the rest of the world has. And today, well, we talk about why the church is losing ground. Yeah, we. I asked him, and he had a really fascinating answer. The importance of existential flex coming out of the pandemic into the future, and how deep personal crisis spawned Start With Why. Uh, sometimes to get ready for these interviews, I will listen to other interviews. And there was one I listened to that Simon gave a number of years ago where he kind of hinted at what led him into figuring out the framework for Start With Why. And I wanted to go there. And man, we learned about his grandfather. We learned about what was happening when he was in his 20s and couldn't find his purpose and was really frustrated, even though he had some success. And so maybe some stuff that you haven't heard before, which is what I'm always interested in. And then some of his best ideas as well. And uh, Simon was very gracious with his time. So I'm excited to have him on the show. And we talk about his ADHD. And also we have a little bit of fun. And I ask him why he stole my book idea. Yeah, that was a fun part of this conversation as well. Simon is an unshakable optimist. He believes in a bright future and our ability to build it together. He's described as a visionary thinker with a rare intellect. And he's devoted his professional life to help advance a vision of the world that does not yet exist, a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled by the work that they do. He is the author of multiple best-selling books, including Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last, Together Is Better, and The Infinite Game, which we talk about a little bit, and of course, has TED Talks that have been viewed by tens of millions of people. And uh, man, I am excited to bring you this conversation. Well, imagine yourself waking up wowed by the beautiful content you see on your social media platform all week long. Instagram and Facebook stories filled with excitement, custom graphics, and animation designed to stop the scroll. The best part is it's all done for you by the ProMedia Fire team. Process is super simple. You do a brand discovery, you confirm ProMedia Fire knows your brand, and then you hand it off. It's a done-for-you social media management solution. And that's how you wake up wowed by your own social media done for you in three easy steps. So if you want to know more and let the pros handle it, book your free consultation today at promediafire.com forward slash growth. That's promediafire.com forward slash growth. And this has been a super challenging year. I know a lot of you, because I talk to you all the time, uh, are going through some stuff right now, but... How would you like to care for your soul? And, uh, you know, as you as a leader, if you're not in a good place, it's hard for you to care for other people. So World Vision has partnered with Danielle Strickland to provide a practical resource called Soul Care Prayer Postures. It's a free web series. And Danielle talks about shared rhythms and practices to help create space in your life for God 
and for your soul and some really practical tools as well. You can sign up for the free web series today by going to worldvision.org forward slash carry. That's worldvision.org forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. And uh, thanks so much for being there in the corner for our partners while they're in the corner for you. Now, it's time for my conversation with Simon Sinek. Simon, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, a thrill to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, I want to start in a place you don't often start, which is sort of the backstory to Simon Sinek, which is, uh, I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with your work. They know your work. They've read your books. They've watched the TED Talks. They've heard you in many interviews. But I'd love to start in your background as as a child. Uh, your grandfather, I know, shaped you. How, how did that happen? Yeah, he, he my maternal grandfather, um, uh, I, I'm very much uh, of him. Uh, he uh-huh. was an, he was a, he was an odd guy. I mean, he marched the beat of his own drum. Uh, I, you know, I think he was sort of a, I think if people didn't know him, he would be labeled a grumpy old man. Um, <laughs> he had a, he had a silly sense of humor. Um, and he just did things his own way. And he was sort of mechanically inclined. He was a good person too. He took really good care of the people. He owned an, uh, a factory, an engineering company, and he took like really good care of his people before huh. it was before it was trendy, you know, where, um, uh, you know, the people, the, 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 the people who worked on his factory floor wanted to buy houses. And so he gave them all interest-free loans, you know, wow. and uh, just like he did stuff like that. And he, he never, nobody ever talked about it. He never got celebrated for it. And he never asked to be, he never, he didn't ask for it. He just did that. But uh, I really learned to be comfortable with being my own person from him. Like I said, he, he, he was not like anybody else. He just, he was totally fine with that. And, and was that in Hong Kong or in England uh, where your grandfather in lived? England, yeah. In England. Okay, yeah. great. And what I didn't know, I knew you were English, but I just found out it was actually Hong Kong. How long did you live in Hong Kong for? We lived there for two years. We we okay. we bounced around as kids. Uh, my dad um, was an expat, and the you know the company moved us around. Um, and yes, I was born in England, and we are English. Um, but uh, before I came to the United States, the last place I was was in England uh, was in Hong Kong. It's interesting. It's a theory. It could be a bad theory, but one of my theories is sometimes if you live in the U.S. but you weren't born there, you have a slightly different perspective. Um, any thoughts on that? Do you think that your experience abroad has given you a unique, a more unique vantage point, even though it was for the first decade? Well, I think you're making a case for diversity. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're making a case for diversity and the value of diversity, which is we all grow up differently. Um, we see the world through different lenses because of our childhoods and our upbringings. Um, uh, and depending on where we come from or how we experience the world or how we go through the world, to bring that new and alternative perspective to a team is what makes teams great. If we only bring in people who look the same, sound the same, you know, uh, the same color, the same, uh, you know, I mean, go through the list, you know, if everybody's, you know, the same, then what you're going to get is people who have the same perspective because they grew up like you. Um, So to answer your question, you know, did my upbringing living around the world shape my worldview that's different than the people who just grew up in one place in the United States? Yes, of course. And that's not unique to me. Uh, that's unique to anybody who grew up differently than the people that they work with. Hmm. So I think I've heard you say that you either were diagnosed or should have been, could have been diagnosed with ADD or ADHD as a child. How did that shape you, Simon? It's true. I mean, I do have ADHD, which was a diagnosed only as, as an adult. But I look back at the struggles I had as a kid and, you know, 
there they absolutely were and i'm secretly glad that that it wasn't identified and it wasn't diagnosed um it i didn't have it to a degree that made it impossible for me to function that made it hmm. you know it, it presented unique challenges for sure um but I, I do believe that the solutions we find to the challenges we have when we're children become our strengths as adults. And so I couldn't, you know, for me, learning was very complicated because I, I had a short attention span. Studying wasn't my strong suit. I couldn't read a textbook because I couldn't get through it. Because um, again, too distractible. And, but I still had to get through school. You know, I still had the challenge that I still, I couldn't fail out. Right. From a pretty young age, I got really good at listening and asking questions. And so I had to go to class. Like even in college, I couldn't, I couldn't like cut class, just read the textbook and take the test. Like some of my, my friends could, I had to go to class, which means I had to take classes with good teachers. Um, so I got, I, so, and that, and if you look at sort of my career now, my career now is very much about asking questions and listening and sort of finding patterns and, 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 and sort of sifting through, through information, it absolutely came from needing to survive as a kid. Hmm. You do a great job of connecting patterns. Any idea, like, is that an innate gift? Is that something you've, you've worked on? Like how, how does that happen? Connecting the dots? I think, I think that, uh, you know, for me, there's a, there's a formula for success. Um, uh, this sort of zero sum formula, um, which is uh, talent, which is something innate, uh, hard work, and then luck. So, so for example, if you win the lottery, that's it's zero talent, zero hard work, all luck, success, but not repeatable. Right. You know? And so, you know, I think we all have innate things in us, probably, you know, as like, like, like the strengths we build when we're kids, you know, and if we invest in building on those, those talents, um, they become even stronger. It's like somebody who has natural aptitude playing basketball, you know, or, or, or baseball or something, which is, and if they work really hard, they get really good at it. Right. Right. But if you have no aptitude, you know, even tremendous amount of hard work, it, it's like, if you've ever watched American Idol, like if you mm -hmm. can't sing, like no amount of hard work is really going to put you at a professional level, right. you know, an amateur level. Sure but not, not, not superstar quality. Like you need mm -hmm. to, you need to have those three things align. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, I think there's some natural something or other. And uh, because I recognized it, I've, I've, I've focused on it. I've, I've, I've honed it, um, which I think is what most people do who uh, have any sort of sense of self-awareness of, of where, where, where their natural gifts or, 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 or earned gifts may lie. How do you hone the gift of connecting the dots? Um, uh, I think out loud, right? Okay. So the, I, and I, and I ask questions, right? So somebody will be explaining something to me that is in a category that I know nothing about right. that I don't understand. They're experts with years and years and years in the field. And they try to explain something to me. And I constantly am saying it back in my words, overly simplifying. So is it right. like this is what you're saying this 
does it work like this? And they go, no, 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 no. I'm like, well, say it to me again. And then I ask for analogies and I ask for examples, specific examples mm. so that I can understand. And then when I can say it back in my terms, they go, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, well, that's just like that thing over there. Because <laughs> the thing that you told me works here is the same thing I realize works there. And then I can connect the dots. But the problem is, is, I, is, is you can't connect dots when the information is up at a high level because it's right. too complicated. And so I can get it down to its lowest common denominator. Then you can start making connections all over the place. Well, you're also a podcaster now, an interviewer. You've been interviewed a million times, but you're also doing your interviewing. One of the things I appreciate about your style, Simon, because there's different schools of thought on interviewing. And I mean this in the most complimentary way, but you don't mind playing dumb. Like you don't mind going, sorry, I, I don't I don't understand what you're talking about. What, do you, what are you saying, right? Is that, do you want to say more about that? You're smiling if you're listening by audio. <laughs> I don't mind playing dumb. Uh, you know, there are very often I'll, I'll ask questions and, you know, I think a lot of people fear that if you say, I don't understand that the audience will think you're dumb. Right. And, you know, you see this sometimes in interviewers, interviewers will start explaining that they understand and I don't know who they're trying to prove it to. Um, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm there, I'm, I, I'm not showing up, I'm showing up for, to learn, you know, mm. I, I, you know, like it's a, it's sort of a funny thing to say, I probably get in trouble saying this but I'm not showing up for my audience, you know, <laughs> like I'm not there. I'm not like doing market research to find out what people want to hear and then trying to get at that thing. Like I'm showing right. up as a student talking to people who know stuff that I don't know. And sometimes I agree with them and sometimes I disagree with them. Sometimes I understand and sometimes I don't understand and I want to learn. And the whole point of the podcast is I'm inviting people to come and enjoy that journey with me. You know, I, I love learning. I love people who who have a point of view. Mm -hmm. um, I like poking the, the, the hornet's nest with a stick sometimes uh, and to see what flies out, you know, sometimes nothing and sometimes something incredible happens. I'm not interested in sort of interviewing somebody about their, their new book, you know, I'm right. not, it's not a promotional platform. Like if mm -hmm. I have somebody on who's done something, I want to talk to them about their point of view on something else or on the world. Um, and like I said, the, the reason to broadcast it is because I think it's really interesting and it's fun to invite people to come and eavesdrop on, on the conversation. If this isn't a Simon Sinek uh, event, you just tell me I'm wrong. But I think it was you who said you were in a boardroom once with these executives, uh, all highly educated, maybe New York or something, that kind of scenario. And they're explaining in something and you're like, no, 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 I don't understand. Break it down. And so they broke broke it down. And then you said, no, 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 I don't really understand that. Simpler, simpler. Almost like, no, talk to me like I was in kindergarten. Is that, is that your story? And then eventually they all confessed to something? Yeah, it was my story. What, okay. what, what happened was um, I was working with a large uh, uh, well services company. And so they, they, it's actually Texas-based, not New York. Oh, there you go. And uh, they had their big annual... Um, analysts meeting. No, uh, yeah, it was their big annual analyst meeting. That's a different conversation. I can tell you where I formed my opinion about analysts from that meeting. Okay. Um, different conversation. So it was their big analyst meeting. And while they were all there, because all the C-level executives were there, um, so this is a you know, billion plus dollar company. Um, they had hired a management consultant to do some work for them. And they were giving a presentation that day. And uh, they invited me to sit in in the meeting. I don't know if mm. why, but they did. And and so the management consultant was giving the presentation and we all had the printed out decks in front of us and we're reading through and listening to this thing. And I, you know, I raised my hand and said, I don't understand what you said. Can you explain it a different way? Because 
you're saying A plus B equals C, but clearly A plus B equals D. The logic doesn't make sense to me. And I apologize to the room. I said, I'm really, really sorry. I know I'm the only person here who doesn't have an MBA, which was true. And the management consultants went, and sort of explained it again. I said, I'm so sorry, but it just still doesn't make sense. Can you just sort of give me an example of like, and one by one, all the C-level executives uh, piped up and said, yeah, I don't understand it either. And had I not, had the idiot in the room not said anything, um, then the, the, the thing would have been, the meeting would have ended and no one would have understood. The work would have been paid for and it would have been useless and nothing would have been implemented. Uh, it's because the idiot in the room spoke up. Um, turns out nobody understood what, what was being said. I found that so liberating. <laughs> Honestly, that's such a great story. Power to idiots everywhere, yeah. <laughs> Uh, tell me about your view of analysts then that came out of that meeting. Uh, I opened the door to that one, didn't I? Uh, you did. You said I it. Know. Okay. So he, he, I, this is where I formed my, my view of, of Wall Street analysts. So this is a public company. Uh, at the time, it was the largest um, land-based well services company in the world, right? Which means if you drop a wrench down an oil well, they fish it out. Like that's- Oh, wow. Okay. Somebody has to look out. Somebody services, like somebody services your car, like Jiffy Lube, somebody services <laughs> your oil well. Right. You're, there you go. Right. So that's that. what they did. So this is the largest one, the largest land-based one in the country, if not the world. And uh, and so about eighty percent of their analysts came to this meeting. Um, so a lot of them flew in from New York and around the country. And all the C-level executives were giving presentations about you know their various sphere of influence. And they were talking about innovation and safety and the things that they were doing and all of this kind of stuff. And it was really great stuff. Hmm. Um, and all of the analysts were sitting around the room going, this is amazing. This is fantastic stuff. Boy, this is, this is really great. And the thing that confused me was about 80% of the information, if not more, that they were presenting in their PowerPoints was available on their website. <laughs> so the thing that I couldn't understand was, why was all of this information new? For all of these analysts, if it was all on the company's website that they're paid to track and offer buy or sell recommendations on, like what are they doing at work if they're not even looking at the largest company in the sector at their website? <laughs> like what are they basing their recommendations on? Because they certainly haven't visited the company. This was the time they were visiting. And so I looked at the price of oil and I looked at the, the price of the m- my client's uh, stock and I looked at the price of their largest competitor stock. And when the price of oil went up, all of their stocks went up. When the price of oil went down, all the, their stocks went down. So the analysts were simply offering buy and sell recommendation on the price of oil, nothing to do with innovation or the safety of the company. And so my my opinion of analysts um, disappeared. I, I, I don't know what the heck they do for work if they can't even check a company's website to find out what they're doing. So yeah, not not a lot of respect there. I'll pull analyst out of my bio then, Simon. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Kidding. And I'm sure there's very good ones, but as a, uh-huh. as a community, I was blown away by the percentages. About 80% of the people in the room, which is too high, this information was new to them. Fascinating. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that is, that is insane. Um, so been a year. We'll talk yeah. about that. It's been a season. Something. Uh, a lot of leaders. <laughs> What's that? Did something happen? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I noticed something. I haven't flown in a year. Maybe there's that. Um, Anyway, Toronto-based, we're still shut down. Uh, Simon, you know, you kind of burst onto the world scene 15-ish years ago with Start With Why, the TED Talk, the book. It just kind of took off. 
but my understanding in the backstory is that came out of a season of drift and discouragement and um, a really tough personal season in your life right before that. Can you can you walk us through the like what was happening to you in your twenties as you kind of drifted through and was almost ready to I don't know give up or whatever that season was? Yeah, I think it's funny that you think it burst on the scene. You know, it's sort of like whimpered and hobbled onto it. But uh, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> um, uh, yeah, for sure. I'm you know I I I'm living proof that in adversity comes opportunity. Right. And in hardship comes renewal Hmm. um, and rebirth. My story is very similar to a lot of people's stories. Um, I started my own small business and was living the American dream. You know, I had great clients. We did great work. We were well-respected and I survived for three years, you know, over 90% of all new businesses in the United States fail within the first three years. What, what were you doing? What was that? Business? I, I had a marketing consulting company. Okay. And, uh, and so year four was very different. So I'd beat the statistic. I survived. And, and so, you know, the thrill of doing the entrepreneurial thing had sort of, it wasn't a thrill anymore. It was, it was not a novelty anymore. Sure. Now I had to build a structure to build a proper business and realize that, you know, the first three years were pretty much running on force of personality, which is not a scalable model either. Um, and so my fourth year in business actually was very difficult. Um, and I struggled a lot and mm. I was very embarrassed by this struggle. I didn't want to wake up and go to work every day. You know, I was really in a dark place and it was, like I said, it was embarrassing because superficially things looked fine, except I, um, um, except I, I didn't want to do it. I hated it. And so all of my energy went into lying, hiding and faking. I pretended that I was happier, more in control and more successful than I felt because, because that's where my energy went. I, I, like I said, out of embarrassment, um, which is, which is in itself exhausting. And it wasn't until a very close friend of mine came to me said, something's wrong. Something's off. Something's not working. And uh, I, I came clean. I told her how I actually felt. And it lifted the psychological weight off my, my shoulders. All that energy that went into lying, hiding, and faking could now be invested in finding a solution. Um, and the solution that I found was this thing called the why. You know, um, I recognized this pattern um, that was based on the biology of human decision-making. And uh, I knew what I did. It was crystal clear. I knew how I did it. I could tell you how I how my business was different or stood out from the crowd, but I couldn't tell you why I was doing it. And I realized that you have to have all three, and I didn't know this essential piece. Uh, that's why I felt the way I felt. And so I became obsessed with discovering my why. Uh, and upon discovering it, my passion was restored to remarkable levels. All I wanted to do was talk about this thing with uh, with my friends. I helped them find their why. They started making crazy life changes. And people just started inviting me to talk about it. And I just kept saying, yes, I never imagined I would uh, do public speaking. It was never a career ambition. I never imagined I'd ever write a book. Like I was never one of those people like who believed I had a book in me. I, I didn't. Right. But, you know, somebody said, you need to write this idea down. And I did. Uh, the reason I think it resonates is because um, is, is for that reason, which is I didn't set out to tell anybody anything. I set out to share something that had profoundly changed my life and my view of the world. And I had, and I had, and have a seamlessly infinite amount of passion for that idea. Why did you decide to write a book about it? How did, cause that's not a, a necessarily logical leap. 
we all go through existential crises, but you did something with it. Um, again, um, you know, it goes back to that formula we talked about, which is a little bit of talent, a little bit of uh, hard work and a little bit of luck. So, yeah. you know, the pattern, the pattern identification helped me discover the thing called the why. Um, the hard work was going through it and talking about it and learning to share it with others. And then, you know, the more I shared it with others, remember, I stopped talking about what I did and I started talking about what I believed and people who believed what I believed wanted to introduce me to people who believed what I believed. And Hmm. so the connections that I was making were vastly superior quality because people weren't making introductions because I could do something for them. People made introductions because they just thought I would get along with someone. Hmm. And I started meeting some amazing people who said, I need you to meet someone. I need you to meet somebody. And somebody said, I need you to meet this, this book editor. And he said, I need you to meet my publisher. And so... I had a 29 minute meeting with this famous business publisher and three days later he offered me a book deal. Wow. So my, you know, I just said yes to every meeting and I just said yes to every opportunity. And I had so much fun because, because I was talking about what I believed and I met people who believed what I believed. I generally met people I got along with and connected with on a values level, as opposed to people who just wanted to buy my thing, which is a totally different, a totally different uh, relationship that's transactional. Why do you think start with why that message, you know, and the talks around it, the 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 idea as well as the book? Why do you think that resonated so deeply? I think it's it goes back to being a little kid, right? Like huh. you tell your kids something, you know, whether you're trying to discipline them, you have to do this or teach them a, a lesson or teach them values or explain how the world works, you know. And what's the first question they all ask? Why? Why? (laughs) Because, and and the worst thing you can say is because I said so. Correct. They want explanation. And I don't think that ever goes away. I think for some reason as adults, we just either stop asking the question out loud and just accept that for some reason we have to just do as we're told. Um, And um, I think that question is an, an, it's an inherently human question. We want to know why we want to know where we come from. We want to know what our roots are. We want to know why the world works. We want to know why the sun comes up and the sun goes down, you know, like we, w- these are, these are not new questions. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're, we're as a, as a, as a, as a species, as a, as a, you know, we're constantly searching for, re- for explanation. Hmm. And the, the most confounding things are things that seem to lack explanation. Um, then we have debates. We, we can't just accept, you know? Um, and so uh, I, I think when, when, when you so publicly ask the question why about a very difficult thing like, why do I do what I do? Why do I get out of bed in the morning? And why should anyone care? Right. I think that pulls on the heartstrings of pretty much everyone. Hmm. Well, you talk about worthy rival, and and uh, that's in the infinite game. You also confess to Adam Grant being a worthy rival. And if anyone hasn't double-clicked on that, you really, really should. But I have a confession to make. This gets down to the hard work part. So when did uh, Start With Why come out? What year was that? 06? 2009. 2009. Okay. Around 06, I had an idea for a book that I was going to call The Power of Why. And it focused on the three ideas that come around every leadership table, what, how, and why. And <laughs> it would not have been as good as your book. It would not have, have touched that. I've written a few books since then, but nothing like that. So that's just, I'm getting that off my chest going, well done, well done, well, Simon you know, Sinek. I wonder what happened in 2006, because I first articulated the concept publicly in January of 2006. Really? Took, yeah. 
that was when I first said it out loud and my journey of spreading the golden circle and talking about why began. And it, it remember, I didn't set out to write a book or give a TED talk. It was over right. the course of that journey that people kept making introductions of which one of them was in 2005, where somebody said, you should write a book. It took me a year to write the book, you know? So, so over the course of those three years before my book and my TED talk happened, I was out there, you know, giving lots of talks and, and honing the idea and, and learning how to, how to, how to, explain it and learning how to help people implement it. So I wonder what was in the water in 2006. Well, I can tell you what was in my origin story there. See what you think. I was going through a really uh, difficult time. I was around 40. Uh, that was my year of burnout. But the frustration that led to it was, uh, you know, being a faith leader, I was leading a growing church. And like you, was being asked a million questions about how. And I began to see the pattern that around every leadership table, and this was a tension in our own leadership too, three leadership questions, what, why, how, and inherently your, your board, your staff is going to go, well, what and how, how much is going to cost? How are we going to do that? How are we going to pull that off? And why is the thing that unites everybody? So my little theory was why unites what and how divides. And that was going to be my, my book that would sell uh, one ten thousandth of the copies that yours did. So, uh, but then I burned out and had a period of recovery. And I think by the time I could see daylight uh, start with why was out and I'm like, oh, he stole my idea except he did a lot better with it. I don't know. That was, that was my origin story. Yeah. I mean, for me, the big thing, you know, and look, people have been talking about purpose for thousands of years. The, I think the big, the big thing that, I'm, that, that happened for Start With Why is I found a language that I was no longer preaching to the converted. You know, I think a lot of books about purpose were, pre they, they preached to the converted. And I think Start With Why found a way to talk to people who, were either doubtful or cynical or for maybe for just business reasons, they couldn't publicly say, yeah, I'm into purpose because at that time it was sort of the weird hippy dippy thing. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, because it was grounded in the, in the tenets of biology, you know, the biology of human decision-making, it wasn't just this ethereal idea. I think it, it made it okay for people to say, yes, purpose is a thing and not feel like they would be um, chastised for it at work. Well, and, and I must say one more time, far superior book to the one that lives in my head, a fantastic book, uh, <laughs> full credit, full credit. I wonder if that ties in with your grandfather somehow, because one of the recurring themes in your work, um, both written and otherwise, is this idea of a just cause, uh, this idea of purpose, this idea of meaning. You know, when you think about that, why, and, and again, the power of that book is it's not what you do, it's not how you do it, it's, it's why you do it. That seems to really resonate. That is a recurrent theme. And as we come out into a post-pandemic or an endemic world or whatever you want to call this, I want to, I want to um, focus in on a couple of your recurring themes that seem to show up. So do you want to talk about just cause moving forward, the why as we move into the sort of whatever this new era is? You, you mean f f uh, theoretically, like what the difference between the two of them or like functionally in the world we live in now? Take it, take it where you want to take it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll go into the theoretical first. So, you know, there is a difference between why and just cause. Hmm. A why comes from the past. It is ostensibly an origin story. It's where we come from. It is objective and it never changes your whole life. So you and I have a why. It is, um, we are the sum total of how we were raised and we are who we are. And the rest of our lives offer us an opportunity to live in balance with that why or not. 
Uh, mm. Y is like a foundation of a house. It's not always the prettiest looking thing in the world, but it gives solidity to the rest of the house. Um, and you can change the house and you can renovate the house, but the foundations will always remain the same. That's, that's what a why is for a person. And that's what a why is for an organization. Um, it's where you come from objective and solid and, and, and unchangeable. A just cause is about where you're going. It's about the future. It's ethereal. It's about, um, it's about your vision of what the future could be like. It is idealistic. It is what it's the house you imagine building upon those foundations. And you mm. might change it as you go along the way, and you may never be com complete. In fact, you will never completely build the, your perfect dream house, but you're going to keep going and going and going. And so you want a strong foundation of why, and then you can go in any direction you like. Um, you probably don't want to change your just cause every year because then you'll get nothing, nothing done, but you yeah. can have multiple just causes. You can have one for your family, one for your church, you can have one for your business and one for yourself. You know, they're probably going to overlap. For me, it's one just cause that is the same for all of them. Hmm. Uh, that I, that I, for me, it's just all of the aspects of my life and how I show up in different aspects of my life are simply different roads I can take to help advance towards the just cause. So for me, it's only one just cause that applies to all aspects of my life. And how would you define that? My cause is, um, um, so I imagine a world. So you see that word imagines, it's about the future, right? Lives in my, lives in my imagination. I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled by the work that they do. Hmm. Um, and I will stop at nothing to help advance towards that, knowing full well that I'll never get there by myself or in my lifetime. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, to articulate a just cause is an invitation for others to join you. If somebody else's just cause inspires you, then, then that just cause can become yours. You know, when Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, he's talking about his imagination, he's talking about the future, right? He was able to put into words something that other people felt. You know, right. I imagine a world. I have a dream that one day little black children will hold hands on the playground with little white children, right? So he put it in very tangible terms that we could see ourselves living in that world. And if that world appealed to you, you could say, that's my vision too. So hmm. even after he was assassinated, his vision lives on because it, it was no longer his, it became ours. Very much so. And you could say the same thing about the Declaration of Independence. Our founding fathers are no longer here to advance the vision, but nearly 250 years later, we're still working very, very hard towards that ideal of all people are created equal. Hmm. Nowhere near there. Yeah. We're, we're trying. We're trying, you know? So that's just cause. You said you can't really change your why. What about, um, you're talking to a few preachers here. What about conversion stories? What about rethinking? What about think again? Is that different? I, 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 I think that's different. I think that's, that's okay. again, it's about, it's about the path you're on and how it's, I think that's, that's about changing where you're going. Ah. I think that's about changing where you're going. That's changing the path you're on to advance. You either didn't have a cause that you found one. Um, or you found a cause that resonates with you uh, more deeply, and so you huh. you convert, you change, you change path, right? But I think who you are fundamentally, where you come from, remains the same. And and like I said, the opportunity is to put yourself in a path that builds on uh, that builds on your strengths, that 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 allows you to be your natural best, and allows you most important to be yourself. Right. And that's when we talk about being yourself, be who you are, that's all why. That's, that's mm. about where you come from, not where you're going. How do you articulate your why? Uh, my why is to inspire people to do the things that inspire them. So together, each of us can change our world for the better. Mm. 
Um, mm. It's like I said, they're not necessarily meant for public consumption. Sometimes they're a little clunky and ugly, like the foundation of a house, but it comes out in, in other ways. Like I talk about inspire people. I talk about inspire someone. I talk about the importance of optimism. It's all, it's all coming from my why. Right. Um, um, and it's the greatest compliment someone can pay me. You know, when somebody says that was inspiring, you inspire me. That's, that's the compliment that makes me feel like I'm, I'm living my purpose because that is, that is where I come from. That is who I am. One of the major influences on your life is a theologian, I guess also a philosopher, professor of religion, uh, James Carse. So talk about the impact of his work. And you also struck up a personal friendship with him. I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend a few months ago as well, last year. Thank you. Yeah, he died in September of last year. So I was given a copy of one of Dr. Carse's books um, called Finite and Infinite Games. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written in the mid-1980s. I was given it probably in the when was I given it? In the early 2000s, sometime okay. mid 2000s. I mean, I've, I've known about his work for a while and uh, it challenged my worldview. Um, very simply, Dr. Kars said um, that there are two types of games, finite games and infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed upon objective, football, baseball. There's always a beginning, middle, and an end. And mm-hmm. if there's a winner, then necessarily there has to be a loser. And then there are infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players, which means new players can join at any time. The rules are changeable, which means everyone can play however they want. And the objective is to perpetuate the game, mm-hmm. uh, to stay in the game as long as possible, but really to perpetuate the game. Turns out we're players in infinite games every day of our lives, right? Um, no one wins education. You can come in first for the finite amount of time you're at school with the agreed upon grade system, and rank system, but nobody wins education. No one's declared the winner of careers. No one's ever declared the winner of business or the winner of global politics or the winner of life. Nobody wins life. Right. It doesn't happen. Right. right. But if you listen to the language of so many people, it becomes abundantly clear that they don't know the game they're in. They talk about being number one, being the best, or beating their competition based on what? Based upon what agreed upon metrics, timeframes, or objectives. And this is a problem because when we don't know the game that we're in, And if we're in an infinite game, if we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, if we play to win or be the best in a game that has no finish line, um, then uh, some very predictable things happen, amongst which include the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. Those conclusions, that discovery uh, that there was that that so many of us were playing for the with the wrong mindset for the game we're in, was sparked by by uh, uh, Dr. Carse's original definition of those two games. So truly very influential, remarkable human being. Yeah. And your argument is that politics and business has really suffered from the finite game. Oh, horribly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> you mean open t- Pandora's box? Sure. Uh-huh. So, Let's so go. Um, I mean, we can see it, we can feel it. Like we, I mean, I'll say things that everybody knows, but I can, now we have a language to explain it, right? Which right. is we're uncomfortable with the fact that our politicians are more preoccupied with winning their elections than taking care of us. Yeah, 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 they say they care about us. And yeah, yeah, they say all the right things, but we can see by their actions and the way they treat each other, because if they truly cared about us, they would learn to work together as opposed to, you know, there, there was a time, and I know, cause I talked to some, some old timey congressmen about this. There was a time where uh, uh, congressmen would debate uh, 80% of a bill behind closed doors and come to an agreement. Hmm. And the last 20% was for the cameras, right? And the, 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 what they would try to get to 
is an agreement so that both parties could go back to their constituents and say, we won. Both parties could say, we got something that we wanted, right? Right. In other words, that's because in an infinite game, because there's, remember, there's no winners or losers. It's like, it's like in business. Circuit City went bankrupt. Best Buy didn't win anything, right? <laughs> Two companies selling the exact same product at about the same price and about the same quality can both be wildly successful at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what happens in infinite games. Democrats and Republicans can both win at exactly the same time. We don't need a winner and a loser. Right. That's how it used to be that both both sides could say we got what we wanted. Right. But what ended up happening now, because the finite mindset has become so dominant in, in American life now, um, now there is no behind the scenes debate. It's 100 percent for the cameras. And it's not sufficient for one side to say we won. Now they also have to demonstrate that the other side lost. And Hmm. the only true losers are us, the people they're supposed to be looking after. And we all know it. We all know it. We can all feel it and we can all see it in the policies. There is nothing wrong with having a different opinion by how America should advance its vision. That's what the two-party system is, which is we have a different opinion about how to get to that thing, that ideal. Well, we think it should go this way. Well, we think we should go this way. Let's debate it and find a way forwards. Um, but now it's become about winning and losing. We see it in business as well. The obsession with the finite game means uh, we see more and more short-termism. We see more and more selfish decisions where we make decisions not for the benefit of our customer, not for the benefit of our employee, but for the benefit of an external uh, shareholder or for the very few executives in that large company that uh, profit from uh, a rising stock price, even though the company is actually making decisions that are that will eventually put it out of business. So unfortunately, finite-mindedness dominates business uh, 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 theory and, and, and political theory of the day. And, and the only people who suffer are us, the customer, the employee, uh, the person who works hard to help the company, the person who buys the products, the person who engages with the organizations. It's, uh, it's, it's really a, a terrible system. As I was getting ready for this interview, I remembered a conversation I had with an executive and I I won't give his name. I don't remember his name and he may not even work there anymore, but he was uh, part of the company called The Bay, which is a almost 350 year old company in Canada. They also now own Saks Fifth Avenue and a bunch of Americans, I think maybe Lord and Taylor, et cetera. So they're a multi, multi billion uh, dollar company. And I don't know how we struck up this conversation, but we're waiting to board. And I said, man, the Bay's on hard times. And he goes, really hard times. I said, do you think you're going to make it? And a 300-year-old company. He said, oh, we know exactly what to do. He says, I know exactly what, it, what we need to do to turn it around. The problem is we're publicly traded. And every 90 days, we have to report to shareholders. And the things we need to do in the short term to win are very different than the things we need to do in the long term to win. Is that an example of a finite versus an infinite game? It's, it's a very good example of finite mindedness. Um, the worst part about it is there is no legal requirement to report every, every 90 days. Mm. The requirement is every year. Really? Correct. And who cares what an analyst tells you you should do to run your company? We've already established how analysts do their jobs. They don't even look at your company's website. So why are you taking business advice from analysts? We don't let analysts run companies, right? Um, And at the end of the day, if if you take care of your employees, your employees will take care of your customer. And if you take care of your customer, they'll buy from you. And if they buy from you, your business will do well and your shareholders will do just fine. Maybe not on their exact timeframe, but everything will be just fine. And the problem is, is we have companies making decisions to benefit the bonus structure of an external analyst. 
Mm. That's twisted. That's like the coach of a team trying to build a strong team by taking advice from fair weathered fans and ignoring the needs of the players. Well, how mm. well is that going to go? Because it's the exact same philosophy. And the question is, is where is the courage? How come, where are all the CEOs? It's a big open secret in the public company, in public companies, right? Everybody thinks Wall Street's a joke. Every CEO of any major public company today knows that they have pressure applied to them to avoid making decisions that are good for the company and to make decisions that they know are bad for the company. So my question is, why do they keep making those decisions? Where is the courage? Well, then they'll say the board. Okay, so why are the boards doing what Wall Street wants? The boards are supposed to be there to protect the interests of the organization, right? It's, and it's, then you have the problems with overpaying uh, based on the price of the equity, which is if you pay somebody a salary based on the performance of the company, guess what they'll preoccupy themselves with? The performance of the company. Mm -hmm. Pay someone based on the price of an equity, guess what they're going to be preoccupied with? The price of the equity. So we have screwed up incentive structures, which incentivize the entirely wrong behaviors. And we don't seem to have a leadership class that has the courage to stand up to, uh, to Wall Street because they either fear for losing their jobs or fear for losing their bonuses. I understand the pressure is overwhelming and it feels very lonely and it feels like they can't stand up to Wall Street, but there are precious few that do. Costco, you know, Jim Senegal ignored mm -hmm. Wall Street. Steve Jobs famously ignored Wall Street. These companies ignored Wall Street and they're some of the, you know, some of the best companies today. And their growth was consistent over time. They weren't fair weathered fans. You know, Costco outperformed GE uh, dramatically. GE was like a roller coaster because that's what Jack Welch played. He played the finite game. And now mm -hmm. GE is a shadow of its former self, if it even survives. Yeah. Right? Whereas where these more infinite-minded organizations are stronger than they've ever been because they built unbelievably strong foundations. So I think part of the response, it's too easy for that CEO to, that CEO to simply say, I can't make the decision. Really? Because you run the company, not them. <laughs> well, you don't understand. It's the system. What system are you talking about? You're the system. So I think we need, we need, and I, and I, again, I, I cannot even, I cannot even imagine the overwhelming pressures he must feel and other mm -hmm. CEOs like him. I, 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 I'm very sympathetic to the pressures, but this is why we need CEOs to come together outside of Wall Street and say, how do we work together for the good of business, for the good of the game? Because that's what the infinite game is about. It's about perpetuating mm -hmm. the game of business for the good of the game that Wall Street is breaking. Right. We know we know what happens when Wall Street has undue influence over the running of companies. Um, uh, we saw it happen. It's what led to the Great Depression. And we right. put in controls. We put in controls to prevent Wall Street and the large banks from having exerting too much control over business. And until we started diluting those laws in the mid 1980s and 90s, do you know the total number of stock market crashes we had between the Great Depression and, and that in that period of uh, uh, when we dismantled Glass-Steagall? The answer is zero. zero. <laughs> we had zero, zero major stock market crashes when, when we kept those, uh, those things separated. But when we allowed uh, those reforms to fall by the wayside, all in the name of, of corporate profit, um, we had three major ones. We had, uh, uh, we had dot-com. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, Black Monday in the 80s. We had, you know, what was it, it was called? We had, uh, we had the dot-com. Uh, the Great Recession. We, uh, we had 2008. And there was one in the 80s as well. In other words, we had three major stock market crashes since we removed the reforms. And we're going to have more. So my yeah. point is, is Wall Street breaks economies. 
Hmm. Uh, because they are making decisions for the good of themselves in a finite manner, rather than than allowing companies and allowing uh, executives to make decisions that are for the good of the whole. The good news is there's pressure to start changing, and we're seeing the results of those pressure. You have something like the Business Roundtable, who are making public statements about the importance of purpose over stock price. I'm not yeah. sure that all of those CEOs believe it, but the fact that the public pressure pushed them to make such a public statement is a step in the right direction. Yeah. Well, uh, we could unpack that for a long time, but we're coming up on time and I want to be Sorry, respectful. You, you pulled out the no, no, no. I couldn't help but get on it. Honestly, I could spend an hour and a half on that because I think we have a lot of young listeners. They're resonating and young leaders don't want to work in the old system. But I do want to get to, uh, and I don't see it right now in my notes. Oh, there it is. Existential flexibility. So we're coming into a brand new world. That was one of the principles that you wrote in 2019 before everything blew up. Talk about the importance of existential flexibility as we move into the future. Because I see a lot of faith leaders moving back to the way it was, clinging to what they know, going, okay, let's get everyone back in the building. And if I was running a restaurant, a gym, it would be tempting to say, hey, we're just going to go back to the way it was before. Let's get up to 2019 levels and then we'll go from there. What is existential flexibility? What does it say to us? So existential flexibility is the capacity to make a 180 degree strategic shift in order to better advance your cause. There's a, I call it a capacity because you need two things. There's, there's two prerequisites before you can even make an existential flex. One is you have to have a just cause. In other mm. words, you can't change routes if you don't know where you're going. Right. Okay? Fair enough. But then you're just going to always choose the fastest road, but you may not get anywhere. Um, and the other thing is you have to have trusting teams because mm. if, if you're going to make a profound shift in the way the organization functions or what its strategy is, the, the, the metrics are probably going to go down in the short term, and you're probably going to increase the level of stress as the organization changes. And so you need people who go, I understand what the cause is. I see why we're doing this. And, and, I'm, and we're gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm a part of this. And, they, and, the, and the team is willing to go through the shared hardship in order to do the right thing for the good of the future. Um, if you don't have the just cause and you don't have the trusting teams, no amount of vision from uh, leadership will, uh, that, that existential flex will probably fail. Mm. Um, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that reveal, and I think, unfortunately, you're right. I think the church as, a, as, an, as an industry, if we can be so base about it, but the church as an industry, uh, unfortunately, looks a lot like a lot of other old-fashioned industries. So. Why is it that Apple computers, a computer company, disrupted the music industry by inventing, uh, by, by perfecting the iPod, you know? Right. Uh, right. iTunes. iTunes is really the thing that changed yeah. it, right? So why didn't the music industry invent that? How is it that Netflix, a little startup that came out of nowhere, um, dominates television and movies? Mm-hmm. Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore. They're, they're, they're gone. Why didn't the television and movie industry invent Netflix? But they're now copying Netflix and playing catch up. You know, it's it, it, the, the disruption comes from organizations usually outside of your your purview, um, right. and you see it all over the place. Which, uh, and I think the 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 church as an industry looks a lot like the music industry, the film industry, the music, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the television industries, which is. This is the way we've always done it. This is how we got big. This is how we got successful. This is how we spread our message. This is how we know. This is what I know how to do because this is what I've been doing for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And so either I'm afraid to change because I only know how to do this or this made me successful. And yet I cannot accept what got me here won't get me there. And I also am 
you know, the world around me is changing. Technology is changing, politics are changing, culture is changing, and I can't do what I used to do. Like Sears can't keep selling, sending out catalogs. It's not the world we live in anymore. They were the most right. innovative company in the world when that was a thing. And so the question is, how do you adapt for the world that we live in? And there's some really fantastic little examples that I think the church can learn from, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, please tell. So look at, look at, look at a medical office, right? Older generation, you have your doctor. That's right. my doctor. My doctor's the best doctor. I go to my doctor. No matter what it is, if it's the common cold or something severe, I go to my doctor, right? And I go to this horrible waiting room that looks the same as all other doctor's offices. Yeah. The customer service is abominable, like all the others, other doctor's offices. You can't talk to your doctor. You know, you can't right. just call your can't doctor. Can't just call them up. Email. Can't do it. Right. And it's just the most appalling system, but no doctor changes anything because why would they? And then there's a young generation that comes up and says, I don't care for basic medicine. If somebody's got the right degree, then they probably know how to give me an annual medical, uh, an annual medical uh, uh, check or, uh, uh, or treat my cold, right? I don't need a specialist. And so you have organizations like One Medical that show up where you walk in and it feels like you're at Pottery Barn and it's beautiful. And the doctor doesn't wear a lab coat. She comes out and says, hi, I'm Stacy, instead of, you know, I'm Dr. Whatever, right? And the customer service is incredible. And you can hmm. call and the, you can talk to the doctor or talk to them virtually. And they yeah. reply to your emails within 24 hours. It's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. It's amazing, right? And there's the basic assumption. It's completely overturning the way medicine works because it's a younger group of people who are saying, yeah, this fits me fine. I would rather turn on the app and go to any doctor's office that's convenient to me rather than mm. one doctor that's inconvenient to me. And so I think the church can learn for that, which is the opportunity is to spread the gospel. Mm. Nobody said that it has to be done one way. Nobody said it has to be done in one location at one time, at one, you know, that suits you. And the people who like to schedule their entire day about going to this one location at this one time, who, who said, yeah. where is that written that it has to be done that way? Uh, well, in the early church, it wasn't. It's just been that way for a few centuries. There you go. You see, we got used mm -hmm. to it. And now we think it's the way it's always been. And so for the church to adapt and be able to offer that way, yes, there's nothing wrong with that. There's still people who want that. And not or, and what if people want to engage one of people want to worship on their own time frame, in their own location, or a remote location, or I want to move from one city to another city, but I want to keep going to the same church with the same people, with the same community. How come you don't allow me to do that? Hmm. And the church's opportunity is they've forgotten. Their, the responsibility of a church is not to get people in the pews. The responsibility of the church is to spread the gospel. So take advantage of changing cultures and changing politics and changing technologies and find new ways. That's existential flux. Hmm. Simon, I'll tell you, this has been fascinating. A final thought you want to leave with people. I really want to respect your time, but there are so many other uh, areas we could explore, but thank you. Uh, you know, the, all of this stuff is a team sport. No one of us is strong enough or smart enough to get through a pandemic, to get through um, all the struggles that our nations are going through these days. And there are unfortunately too many to, it's overwhelming, quite frankly. And um, I think one of the things that uh, we learned in the pandemic is we need each other. 
Yeah. We can't do it alone. And I think one of the essential roles that the church can still play, you know, people talk about, you know, there's a decline, you know, declining um, membership to, to churches these days. And, and yet you see rising uh, discussion about Eastern philosophies and spirituality mm. discussions. So it's not that people are losing their spirituality. It's that the church is losing its relevance. Mm. And, and people are, are spiritual and in search of community in search of belief and in search of belonging and in search of hope and in search of vision. And, um, and they're not getting it. And so they're looking for it in other places. That's what's happening. And so I think if there's a lesson to be learned here is, is we need each other and we have to take care of each other and we have to look out for each other because together we can get through absolutely anything. And uh, um, I think the church has a, has a strong role to play in maintaining and helping rebuild so much community that has been lost um, for all the reasons we've already talked about over the course of this interview. Ah. Simon, thank you so much. Hey, if uh, I, I know most people are probably already following you, but where are you active these days? You seem to be pretty active on Instagram. Where, where else are you showing up online? All the usual places. Yeah, you know, got it. I, again, I, my responsibility is not to tell you where to get my stuff. My responsibility is to put my stuff wherever you are. So some people use one platform, someone use another, and and I try and I try and share my work wherever you are. So wherever you go, I, I'm, I'm probably there. <laughs> Simon, it's been a joy. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thank Thanks you so much. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. I appreciate okay. it. Well, I am guessing you probably found that conversation as fascinating as I did. And if you want a little bit more, including quotes, shareables, graphics, also um, a transcript for free and some insights that we glean from the episode, you can find that over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 417. That's brought to you free every single week like this podcast. Hey, if you're new here, um, subscribe. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. And uh, we just really appreciate you taking the time to listen to these episodes. Hopefully they make a big difference in your life and in your leadership. And if you really appreciated this episode, why not share it on social? Send it to a friend, text the link, uh, post it on social. Uh, whatever you do, when you share this podcast, the word gets out there and we get to do this week after week after week. It's a wonderful, virtuous cycle. Um, hey, next episode, we're going to drill down, get super nerdy. And I mean that in the best sense with my good friend, Tony Morgan. Tony comes back to talk about uh, church attendance trends. We got some fresh data, best and worst practices for digital strategy uh, and so much more. Here's an excerpt. And what we're seeing is on average churches have seen a decline in in-person attendance by close to 30%. Uh, and then on the flip side, this is, and again, this is goes to some of the conversation we've had already about how churches quickly pivoted and are beginning to leverage a little bit better online. What we've seen is churches in the last year have almost more than doubled the number of online views uh, for their services. Also coming up, Gordon McDonald, Christine Kane, Greg McEwen is back to talk about his latest book. Ed Stetzer, Allison Fallon, Amy Edmondson. Who else have we booked? We've got uh, Chris McChesney from 4DX, Pete Scazzaro, Dr. Anita Phillips. It's going to be a great year on the podcast. And uh, now it's time for what I'm thinking about. And I want to drill a little bit further down on the concept of what the church needs to do to really be relevant moving forward. Uh, Simon and I touched on that in the conversation. So 
Church attendance does appear to continue to take a nosedive, and I want to talk about what's next. And thank you to our partners. If you haven't checked them out yet, please do. You're going to be grateful you did. You can visit World Vision over at worldvision.org forward slash carry to get their free web series with Danielle Strickland and book your free social media management consult today over at promediafire.com forward slash growth. So uh, church attendance long before the pandemic has been trending down for decades now. And the question is, what do you do about it, right? And what I've seen, and I've talked to a lot of leaders about this in the first months of 2021, uh, it just seems like a lot of church leaders are like, come back to the building, come back to the building. And everyone is hyper obsessed about getting attendance back to where it was before the pandemic. Now, I'm not saying that's a mistake, but I am saying it's very, very narrow vision. And I think what you're going to do is you're going to compromise your future. Because I think in the future church, the church is going to meet anytime, anywhere, sometimes. And what do I mean by that? Well, when you look at it, even before the pandemic, people were tracking with church online. And you might say, well, we didn't have a church online. That kind of doesn't matter. There's a lot of churches online and people are tracking with them. And we live in this seamless slipstream of digital analog, digital analog. I mean, right now, somewhere, you are listening to this podcast and in a few minutes, you're going to have a real human interaction. That is the future. And more and more video content is being done on demand, right? So audio, video. I mean, when are you listening to this podcast? I promise you, it's not when I record it because we don't even release it live, right? I'm recording this on a morning. It's uh, what, 7.40 a.m. in my basement. When are you listening to it? I don't know. Where are you listening to it? I don't know. When are, you, you could be listening to this a year after it releases, two years after it releases. Does it matter? No. Because if we bring you a good conversation, you're going to enjoy it. Well, what if church content was the same way, where it's kind of on demand wherever you happen to be rather than be in the building at set times? Now, I promise you, people are always going to show up at your building. That's awesome. But if you're hyper obsessed on pack the room, pack the room, pack the room, I think you're missing an opportunity. Uh, Another thing that's happening right now is consumers are leaving and won't be back. That's one thing that got accelerated over the last year, year and a half is people who were kind of on the bubble, they're gone. All right, so consumer Christianity is missing. But consumer Christianity isn't about what you bring to the mission. It's about what you squeeze out of it. So you can't really build the future of your church on them. And why are you going to fight so hard to get those people back? Why not find new curious people, people who are, are genuinely curious about the church? And that leads us to the future where I think contributors and the curious will step up. You're going to find that there are some people, and you know this, who are deeply devoted to your mission no matter what. And then you got a lot of new people who are like, hey, I'm really curious about this, you know, the spiritual thing. I think I'm spiritual. I don't know about Christianity. I don't know about Jesus. Why don't you try to reach them? And why don't you try to bring the gospel to them? Um, Now, they may show up your building. They may not. Does it really matter? I mean, we have, I think, 17 million downloads on this podcast yet. How many of you have I met? I don't know. Not probably less than 1%, maybe half a percent of the people who listen to this show. Now, I would love to meet all of you, but here's the point. This is having an impact in your life. I mean, if you're a subscriber, we hear from you every day. It's like, thank you for the podcast. Thanks for this episode. That's amazing. See, that's actually a form of ministry. It's a form of being around you. And your church can be the same way. So if you think about the end of the come to me era and start to think about the go to them era, I think we're going to see a really good season for the church. 
I've got thoughts like this and a whole lot more over on my website. If you haven't ever checked it out, because I know listening and like being on your phone and clicking over to where someone writes, they can be two different worlds. But if you've never done that, I'd love for you today to check out kerrynewhoff.com because I write on a regular basis there. That's where all the show notes for this podcast live. And we have all kinds of great stuff. 99% of it is free. And then there's a few pro-level resources that we love to give to leaders. And uh, you can check those out as well. I have a number of courses. We've also got something called Leader Circle, where I do your staff training for you every single month and a whole lot more. And, you know, my commitment is I want our free resources to be better than most people's paid resources. So there's a lot of pro stuff there. There's also a whole lot of free stuff there. So check it out over at kerrynewhoff.com. It's been a joy to be with you in this hour. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And I can't wait to do it again. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.